Each Lord's Day, we come together for a variety of different purposes. We come to offer up our mutual prayers and praises to God. We come to teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as we've just done. We come to confess our sins before God, as Elder Canfield led us to do, and to receive the assurance of his pardon. We come to give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord. We come to fellowship around his table every other week. We have the Lord's Supper. These are all incredibly important things that we do as believers on the Lord's Day. The most important thing, though, that we do together on Sundays is that we come here to have this book, the Bible, God's Word, opened up, explained, and applied to our lives. Why do I say this is the most important thing? Well, it's because it is God's Word. It's the, it, there is no other Word of God. This is the only one. And in here, we learn what we were made for, the purpose of our existence. We learn that we were made to know God and to serve Him. And God reveals Himself to us in this book. And we are taught by Him what we're to believe about Him, what He commands us to do, how He wants us to serve Him. And so this book is very important to us as believers. We come to it reverently and we come to it expectantly, waiting to receive from God his word for us. Now, some of us may not be as familiar with the Bible as others. Let me just explain something very important to you about it. The Bible is not one big, long, monolithic piece of literature that runs from beginning to end as like an unbroken argument. It's not a novel or a biography or something like that. It's actually a compilation of of all kinds of different books that are written by a number of different authors over a period of um, several thousand years. And in it, there's all kinds of different types of literature. There's uh, genealogies, there's histories, there's legal documents and covenants, there's poetry, there's psalms, um, there, are, there are proverbs and sayings, there's prophecies, there's apocalyptic literature, and there are letters. There are letters that are addressed to individuals, and there are letters addressed to entire churches like this one. What we're going to study this morning is one of the letters that's addressed to an entire church. Who wrote the letter? It was written by a man named Paul who lived about the time of Jesus. He was an apostle, which means that he was sent out as a messenger, carrying a message Who was Paul an apostle for? He was an apostle for the Lord Jesus Christ, commissioned by him to carry the good news of the gospel to the world. It was Paul's mission as Christ's apostle to go from city to city preaching this gospel with all authority. And when God blessed that preaching with conversions, he would establish churches from among the people, from among the believers, and he would appoint pastors and elders from them. And then he would move on because he was a man on a mission. He was busy. He didn't stay very long in any one place. But Paul managed to keep tabs on all of these churches that he'd planted. He was a very good, faithful shepherd. He was, he was their father. He was responsible for all of these churches. He carried them in his heart. 
So when he could, he would come visit them, but this was not always possible. And so he would often assign trustworthy men to go um, to visit these churches and to check up on them and, and to bring news back about how they're doing to Paul so that he could then teach and admonish and encourage and rebuke them as necessary. So the portion of scripture we're going to study this morning is an excerpt from a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted, a church that he loved dearly, a church for which he was a father. To what church was the letter written? Well, one of the cities that Paul visited on his travels was the city of Corinth, At the time of Paul's first visit there, about AD 51, Corinth was a major cosmopolitan commercial center, about five times the size of Athens. Not an old city, only about 100 years old, but it already achieved a very large size. It attracted all kinds of people. It was a cultural melting pot. had a a seaport, and business was good in Corinth. It was much like New York is for us today. It was a place where you go if you're going to try to make it big. Corinth was a pagan city. It had temples to all kinds of false gods and goddesses. It was a very licentious city, full of sexual immorality, prostitution. It was the center of the worship of the goddess Aphrodite, if that tells you anything. Some of you will remember from recent sermons here about 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to this church, that uh, there's one of the Greek verbs for fornicate is korintiatsomai or something like that, Josh. Okay, close enough. Um, or to korinthicate. There was a word for sexual, a sexual act, which was to korinthicate. Can you imagine living in a city, you know, like the... David Baker was telling, reminding me after the first service of the Red Hot Chili Peppers song, you know, Californication. It goes hand in hand, you know, there, you can imagine it. Well, what on earth attracted Paul to Corinth? It was surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the Jews. Which is kind of weird when you, when you understand that, or remember that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That's what he called himself. So what about the, why would he be attracted there by the Jews? Well, Jew, Paul was always careful to first preach the gospel to the Jews, God's chosen people Israel. He was himself a Jew. And so his first stop on almost every city was the synagogue. And he'd go right there. And he would start reasoning with the Jews. And he would explain and try to convince them that Jesus was the Messiah, their Messiah. This was their gospel, as far as Paul was concerned. Did they receive the gospel as the good news? Did they receive Jesus as their rightful king? No, they didn't. Not in Corinth. This was often the case with the Jews, wherever Paul went. They hardened their hearts to Paul. They'd usually give him a window of time, they'd hear him out, and eventually they would just harden themselves to him. And... And uh, Paul, they, at, in Corinth, in Acts 18, we learned that they actually blaspheme against God, being so mad at Paul. 
And Paul shakes the dust off his feet, off his robes. And he says to them, your blood is on your own heads. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. Paul goes to the Gentiles in Corinth then. And they receive the gospel. Not all of them, but some of them. Which ones received the gospel? Was it the rich and the famous? Was it the high and mighty, the, the powerful, the wheelers and dealers, the educated? No, not so much. Paul reminds them in his first letter that there's not many mighty, there's not many noble, not many famous and rich and strong. And then he reminds them that God is rarely pleased to choose those people. God loves his own glory. He's very jealous for his own glory. And he loves the weak and the helpless and the oppressed because in them he he can be strong. He can be glorious and big. He can save people like that. People who need him. God is glorified in weakness. And so these are the type of people that he chose in Corinth to call to himself. It wasn't a church of famous people. It was a church of rejects. They thought much of themselves, and Paul had to discipline that. But largely, they were a church of orphans and widows and slaves, cast-offs, the poor. So what is the letter about? That's who it's to, the Corinthians. It's Paul's second letter to them that we're going to study this morning. What was the second letter about? Well, It's about two things mainly. First, it's a letter of reconciliation. Paul had written his first letter to them under very difficult circumstances. The church was not healthy. He had heard a really bad report. And as a good father, he he rebuked them very strongly. It's a very stern, lengthy letter, very difficult. He answers some of their questions But he answers them very pointedly. He rebukes their pride. He rebukes their division, their divisiveness. That was the first letter. And and after he wrote it, you know how sometimes when you write a difficult letter or an email and you just have this sick feeling in your stomach? It just weighs on you, waiting for the response. And you're checking the email and your heart's pumping. This was Paul for like two years, I think, maybe a long time anyway. Titus, he had sent his, his buddy Titus with the letter. And Titus was supposed to bring back a report about how the letter was received. And, and he uh, didn't find him where he was expecting to. And he had to go a long time without hearing the news. But finally, he comes across Titus and he hears this wonderful news that they had received the letter, that they had received his rebukes and his instructions, that they had performed the discipline of this notorious sinner who was living in their midst that they, that they were very almost proud of. They had obeyed Paul and they had disciplined this man. And Paul was so relieved. He writes them Second Corinthians. <laughs> and as any good father does after he's disciplined his child, he re- Paul reestablishes his affection his fatherly care, his warmth with them. It's a very tender letter. It's not without rebukes. Paul's never without rebukes. But it, it's very tender and very warm. It's a very personal letter from uh, a vulnerable man to a church that he loves, the people he loves. 
That's 2 Corinthians. This, this, the second thing that 2 Corinthians is about is, believe it or not, fundraising. There's a really lengthy section in, in 2 Corinthians about fundraising, where Paul is making an appeal to the Corinthians to uh, give a lot of money, as much as they possibly can, to, to support the, uh, the oppressed, persecuted Christians that live in Jerusalem. It was a hard place to be, Jerusalem, if you're a Christian in those days. They had killed Jesus, but they didn't stop with Jesus. They wanted to stamp out this entire movement, the way. They wanted rid of all the Christians. And so, very hard to be a Christian in Jerusalem. And, and the churches of Macedonia had this great idea. Let's commission Paul and some others to administrate a, a, a mass collection from all the churches. Let's get them all to donate as much as they can, and we will send a love offering to the church in Jerusalem, to the poor, persecuted Christians there. And so Paul here is making his fundraising appeal for that collection. And that's where we're at in the letter. Um, we're smack dab in the middle of a two-chapter-long appeal for money to the Corinthians. Well, there's a f- couple of things before we get to our text that we need to understand about Paul's letters generally. And this will help us understand what's going on in our passage. First, understand there, w- there was no postal service in these days. Not even the Pony Express. If, if you wanted to have a letter like this delivered to a church, it had to be hand-delivered. And so Paul would have selected men, trustworthy men, to deliver the letters. And they would have been there in the congregation as the letters read to them. And as we're going to see in our passage, there were three men in the case of 2 Corinthians that brought the letter, and they were there as the letters written or read. And not only that, but they're referenced directly and they're commended to the church for their godliness, each one in his own way. The second thing that, the, that uh, Paul's letters are about is that, that they would have, what you need to understand is that they would have been read publicly like right now in place of me. The, the, the Old Testament scriptures were widely available in those days, and so they would, the churches would often or usually have expounded a passage from the Old Testament as part of their worship, much like we would preach from the scriptures today. Um, but when an apostolic letter, a letter from Paul, arrived, they would replace that time with the reading of his letter. And that's because it was understood that an apostolic letter was God's word. There was an expectation in the churches because of what Jesus had told his disciples that these these men would be writing God's word. He had said to them, I will send you the Holy Spirit. The Father will send you the Holy Spirit. And he will remind you of everything. He will bring to mind everything that I have said to you. And so there was this expectation in the church that, that, that these men, like Paul, would be writing God's word. And they were. And these letters would have been received as such. And that's important for us to keep in mind because this passage is, a, is, 
similar in a way to the uh, scripture lesson we read this morning. Did anybody else's eyes kind of glaze over at all the names, you know, and then you suddenly wake up in the middle and it's like, what's going on? Well, there are many passages of scripture that are like that for us. And it's not because they're any less God's word. It's not because they're not very important and precious words from God for us, worthy of our attention and our study. It's because our minds are dull. We're weak, we're distracted, and we tend to sit in judgment on God's word at these times in these places, these less glamorous passages, you know, the, the, the passages we normally skim or skip over. This is one of those passages. And let's remember that it is no less God's word than any part of Scripture. And we need to give it our attention this morning. So would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 16. In the middle of a fundraising appeal, Paul says these words. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administrated by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask two very important things of you this morning. We ask that you would bless my preaching, that it would be truly your words, your thoughts, inspired by your Holy Spirit coming forth from my lips, that they wouldn't be my own ideas or thoughts. And and Father, secondly, we ask that they would come with power, that our hearts would receive them, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place. And that we would receive your word with gladness and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are three men mentioned in this passage. And they're more than mentioned, actually. They're they're commended. What are they commended for? Well, each of the three, in his own way, is commended for his godly character. Why would Paul feel the need to commend these men. Remember, they're sitting here. I'm, I'm reading a letter. I'm, just, I'm one of the elders or something, and I'm reading Paul's letter, and these men are sitting here, and we've come to this fundraising part, and suddenly these men are commended who are sitting here. What's Paul's objective? What's going on? 
Well, if you'll recall, we are in the middle of a fundraising letter, a campaign, and these three men have been sent not just to deliver a letter, but to carry this church's money back with them to Paul so that Paul can distribute it to the the Christians in Jerusalem. In verse 19, Paul says that this collection is being administrated by him for the glory of the Lord himself. Fundraising is a very delicate work. And especially so when it's done in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is because money is just all around a sensitive thing. There's nothing in this world that we cling to more tightly. We go to incredible lengths to get it. We work hard for it. We think about it constantly. You kind of can't escape that. It's just sort of everywhere. It's, it's such an integrated part of your life. And we don't part with it easily, most of us. Money is at the center of so much of our life. And we take money very personally. It's, it's awkward to even talk about money. Brian, you want to just pop up and tell us what you make for a living? No, I don't suppose that you do. I don't. Although everybody knows, because mine gets to be up on a screen for everybody. (laughs) It's awkward to ask for money. It's awkward to be asked for money. Money is, is a delicate business. My wife buys herbs from Henry's Apothecary. Is that what it's called? Henry Lair. He's in our church, a young boy. And several times I've seen on our marker board at home... um, Remember, $6 for Henry. And my wife will have her herbs, but there'll be this note for a very long time that says, remember, $6 for Henry. And I'm thinking to myself, every time I pass it, where's Henry? Like, why isn't Henry knocking on my door to get the $6? This is a business, right? You can't just go on for weeks and weeks without getting his money. Well, Henry's a young boy, and, you know, he's selling it to our wives, men, you know, these herbs, and it's an awkward thing. (laughs) There's all kinds of, like, weirdness when you get to money. You know, there's, there's just, you have to handle it delicately. It's awkward to talk about. It's awkward to ask for it. It's difficult to deal with money. When it comes to money in the church... When it comes to money that's dealt in the name of the Lord Jesus, when it's exchanged for the purposes of the gospel, it's especially important that it be done with transparency, that it be done above the table in plain sight. This is because money is a source, tends to be a source of suspicion, jealousy, conflict, and division in the church. And it must be handled with great pastoral wisdom and care, with an eye to the many spiritual realities that are surrounding it. We tend to think of church finances as this kind of non-spiritual side of the church, a purely administrative thing. For that matter, we tend to think of administration as in the church as this kind of a business side of what we do, a non-spiritual or a less spiritual aspect to our life. But actually, administration is where the whole church intersects. It's where people's personalities and sins um, loom largest. It's where most conflicts in the church either blow up or 
are mediated or avoided altogether. Administration, and particularly the administration of the church's money, is an incredible, weighty, and spiritual pastoral work. And this is where these three men come in. Paul says in verse 20 that he's taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. These men are being commended for their godly character because Paul is being a good, wise, pastoral administrator. He understands the hearts of men. He understands and knows that that it's sensitive and delicate to talk about money. He knows that when it comes to their money, the Corinthians are going to be disinclined to trust these men. And Paul, anticipating their concerns, preemptively assures the Corinthians that these are godly, dependable men. Men who are zealous for the Lord's work. Men who can be trusted. Men who have, in fact, been entrusted with an extremely important and spiritual duty to fulfill here. Now, for each man, Paul presents evidence to support this claim. And what I want us to do this morning, going man by man, I want us to examine what kind of qualities recommend a man for this kind of important, weighty, pastoral, spiritual work of dealing administratively with money in the church. A very important aspect to life in the church. What commends a man for that, according to Paul? Let's look at the first man, the only one who is mentioned by name, and that is Titus. Verse 16, Paul says, Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. What is, how is Paul com- commending Titus here? Twice it mentions that Titus is an earnest man. What does it mean to be earnest? Well, if you look up that word in the thesaurus, you're probably going to find immediately the closest matching word or synonym. Uh, uh, I just blanked. What is it? Sincerity. Is that right? Sincere, yeah. It's more like, it's something more than that, though, I think. It's not quite the right thing. It, it carries more than that, the word um, earnest. It's more like a motivated sincerity. It carries with it an aspect of zeal, uh, of desire. Titus desired the re- this responsibility of going to Corinth. He was eager to go, so much so that even that when Paul appealed to him, of course he had to appeal to him, but Titus was just like so willing to go. Paul says, I didn't, even, I didn't even have to ask this guy. He was eager. He was earnest. Titus was earnest, Paul says, on their behalf. Titus believed in this work of the collection for the saints. It was a source of great joy to him that churches throughout the region would have an opportunity to give sacrificially to the relief of these persecuted Christians. It was beautiful to him. But there was much more to Titus's excitement here than that some poor struggling Christians who he didn't know would, would find relief. Titus, I'm sure, was familiar with the words of Jesus that it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
He knew that the act of giving on the part of the Corinthians would be the very means God would use to bless the Corinthians. Paul tells us that Titus was earnest on their behalf. He, it was a beautiful and exciting thing to him that by making this trip, he would be given an opportunity to be part of God's blessing, the Corinthians. He was more than willing to go because of this. Titus was a very earnest man. Earnest on behalf of the Corinthian church. Now this kind of earnestness, an earnestness which seeks the good of others, is completely just like excited about blessing others. This this cannot be comprehended by us. It defies all human reasoning. What on earth did Titus have to gain here? That's what we want to know. If it was us, what are we getting out of it? What do we have to gain? You know, is there like some great shopping mall in Corinth that we could also go see while we're there? Is there there some sort of traction there? For Titus, it was none of that. It was just the attraction of seeing these people blessed in eternity by their sacrificial giving storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. And for him to get to be a part of that was exciting and fulfilling for Titus. He was earnest. And we can't comprehend it because we're materialists. And we're all wrapped up in the cares and the things, the stuff of this world. We're tethered here. We're addicted to it. We're consumed with the soccer scores and Toy Story 3 and bamboo floors. That's me this week. We're completely addicted to our own best interests of getting the most out of this short life that we have. Finding our excitement and our pleasure here. For Paul, it was the thought I mean, for Titus, it was the thought of these people receiving treasure in heaven for all eternity to enjoy. Earnest men like Titus, unlike us, are addicted to the glorious thought of seeing others get the most out of eternity. There's nobody in the world who's earnest like Titus earnest for the eternal good of others. Nobody apart from the grace of God. It was God we see in in this passage who put this earnestness in the heart of Titus. It was not Titus born earnest by nature. He He didn't have this disposition naturally. Paul was made earnest with by the gospel of Jesus Christ working in him that which is pleasing in God's sight. It was the power of God in regeneration, making Titus a new creation, making Titus a man who loves his brothers. This is what the gospel does to men. It transforms them from self-focused Self-seeking, self-gratifying, grumbling and complaining, never satisfied materialists 
and to men who are eager to serve the Lord with no thought to their own benefit. By the power of God, Titus was reborn in Christ Jesus, an earnest man. And this earnestness, this zeal, is what qualified Titus to fulfill this very important role in the church, a role of service, a role of responsibility. What about our man number two? Paul writes in verse 18, We've sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. We're not given the name of this second man, but we're told something amazing about him, that he was famous in the things of the gospel throughout all the churches. What does it mean that he was famous in the things of the gospel? Well, what do you think Paul meant by famous? Does he mean that this man could fill football stadiums, pack out IU basketball auditorium when he came into town to speak? Is he famous like Joel Osteen down in Houston who, who writes bestsellers and is on, the, on TV and watched by millions of people every Sunday? Is he famous like that? That kind of fame is never the fame of the gospel. The fame of the gospel is such that it would only be considered fame by those who love the Lord Jesus and not the things of this world. Who have suffered in this life for their faith and who long for the appearing of the Lord. Only those kind of men would think of this second man as famous. To the unbelieving the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ is utter foolishness. It's a bunch of rubbish. More than that, they hate it. It's offensive to them. Outside of the church, to be famous in the things of the gospel is, is more like being infamous than famous. It's to be known as a fool. To speak boldly words of foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18 The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What would make a man willing to suffer for the gospel? What would make him be willing to devote all his energy and his gifts and his resources and his time, his passion? What would make him devote these things to a message that would only bring lots of, of shame and anger and, and resentment in his, to his life from lost and dying world? What would it take? Well, it would take a miracle. It would take that gospel first being impressed deeply on his own heart, awakening in him the terrifying reality of the hell his sin deserves, causing him to fall on his face before a holy God, crying out for mercy. It would take that gospel applying the conscience To his conscience, the blood of Christ poured out for sin, cleansing his conscience from dead works to serve the living God in newness of life, causing his heart to cry out, Abba, Father, and leading him to begin to feel the burden of souls around him. 
It would take a miracle. That's a miracle. This man was famous in the things of the gospel. What are we famous for? What are we known for? Is it the things of the gospel? When people think of me and you, do they think of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Oh yeah, there's that guy. He's, a, he's all about the gospel. Listen to me now. They would only think this if we have ever actually preached the gospel to them. We will never be people who are known for the gospel, no matter how piously, decently, nicely we live, until we actually open our mouths and proclaim it to them. Then we'll be known for the things of the gospel. Then we'll be famous for them. Infamous. This man was famous for his boldness. And it qualified him for significant service to the Lord Jesus. What are we known for? I'm afraid that many of us, myself included, are known for much less worthy things than the gospel. We're known for who won the game last night, who, who can plant a pretty garden, who, who has an iPhone. We're known for petty things like that. Who can play an instrument nice? Who dresses well? Who can recite movies? That's what we're known for. That's what we're famous for. We're known for anything that we can build a relationship with with unbelievers, build a relationship on, that gives us something to talk about other than sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're happy to be known for anything but those things. We don't want to be famous like that. We want to be safe and comfortable and reasonable and nice. What commends this man for important service to the church is a quality we are afraid to own for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, we need to be done with our cowardliness. We need to put it to death through the power of the gospel. And we need to become bold. Finally, our third man. Paul writes about him in verse 22. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. This third man, also unnamed, but probably the younger of the three, is commended for his often tested and proven diligence. What is diligence? Diligence is not to be confused with hard work. I can work hard when it suits me. This is because I'm very driven in certain areas of my life. But having drive is not the same thing at all as having diligence. Lucas Weeks is diligent. The rest of the pastor's college students and the rest of you, at best we have drive. What's the difference between the two? Well, men who are driven do the things that they like to do. And they throw all kinds of energy and time at them so that everybody else ends up having this impression of them that they're incredibly busy men, incredibly industrious, incredibly disciplined men. All the while, 
They avoid the things that they don't like to do and are only doing the things that they enjoy. This is drive. Diligence, on the other hand, a diligent man is faithful, not just in the things that he enjoys, that are fun, that are recognizable and high profile, but in those things that are invisible, the things that he despises, the things that are totally not fun, the hard things. Diligent men get their work done. They finish what they start. You give a diligent man a task and he will accomplish accomplish it and he will bring it to satisfactory completion. You delegate responsibility to a diligent man and you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's taken care of. Diligent man can be, men can be relied on. Driven men cannot be relied on. Diligence is a godly virtue. But as far as I can tell, drive is nothing more than a kind of glorified, sophisticated form of laziness. I have drive. Any man can have drive. After all, none of us are hypocrites in our pleasures. But it takes a godly man, a man with a godly impulse working in him, to be diligent. There are far too many driven men in this world. What we need are a few more diligent ones. Men who you can throw hard things at. Not fun jobs that just need to get taken care of. Men who can see what needs to be done and are just waiting to shoulder it as soon as they see it. We need diligent men. It was diligence that qualified this young man to serve in this very important role in the church. How desperately do we need more men who can be relied on like him? Men who are hardworking and thorough. We need men of diligence. And men for our own sakes. For our own sakes as we have to stand and give an account to the Lord Jesus. For what we have done with our lives. For every deed in our body. For our own sakes we need to be men of diligence. And we need to become more earnest. We need to forget about ourselves and our amusing ourselves, filling our lives with stuff. And we need to become earnest. And we need to become bold in our proclamation of the gospel until we're famous, infamous in these things. And this is all because of what Paul says of these three men in verse 23. He says, as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory, a glory to Christ. These men were qualified by their godly character to bear responsibility in the church, in the kingdom of God, because, Paul says, they are glory to Christ. This is the purpose of our entire existence. To bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ with every thought, word, and deed, and action, and attitude. This is why God made us. And if we can 
if we can do these things, then we'll be fit for leadership. And there's no better way to bring glory to God than to be able to bear the weight of his bride, the church, on our shoulders. This is an incredible glory to the Lord Jesus. How do we, how do, we do this? How can we possibly do it? If you're like me, in every one of those tests, you fail. It starts with acknowledging our, our sin by repenting of it, by bringing it to the Lord and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then it continues with faith. And it says, Lord, there is mercy new to me today. There is power available to me from your hand through your Holy Spirit. Would you give him to me that I could be bold today, that I could be diligent and hardworking today, that I could be earnest and not care about myself, but care for others today. This is what we need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would help us be worthy to bear his name.